Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for continuing to support and encourage and even grow your church under difficult times. And thank you for the encouragement that it is to know that no matter what comes our way in the world, we have overcome it, that it will not be the end of us, we're merely passing through it. Thank you, Father, that you are creating amazing stories of ministry in the midst of all of these times. You've brought to my attention, Father, on many occasions, uh, remarkable testimonies of how men and women are serving one another and being served in this time. And it's because of those testimonies, Father, that I know you have good purpose in what is happening, even as many others may be suffering and some perhaps even dying as a result of what we now face, Father, nonetheless, in eternal terms, something good is coming. And we trust in that, we trust in your word, we trust in your promises, we continue, Father, in the endeavor of meeting and in teaching in the ways that we can, because, Father, you've asked us to do so, and never has there been better time for us to be a light in darkness than now, we thank you for the privilege that it is to serve in that way. Help us be brighter light in what we learned this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, it's customary to offer a condemned criminal the opportunity to speak last words before he dies. And in chapter 23 of Matthew this morning, we are studying Jesus' final public words before he dies. He hasn't been condemned yet. That won't happen for another 36 hours in the narrative of Matthew. And by the time that happens, Jesus will have stopped speaking. The Bible says that he goes to the cross silently and does so on his own terms. And therefore, he chooses to deliver his final words now in Matthew 23, which is the Tuesday before he dies, in the temple as he's surrounded by crowds. And he directs his words squarely at the religious leaders. He uses his final words to condemn the nation's religious leaders for their part in confusing and abusing the generation of Israel under their authority. Jesus calls them hypocrites, and he says their corrupt leadership was the cause for Israel rejecting him and his offer to bring the kingdom. That is to say, had these men actually done their job and pointed the Jewish population to Jesus as their Messiah, they would have followed that instruction and embraced him, and the history of Israel would have been very different. So in this chapter, Jesus is now speaking about these men, revealing their corrupt nature and character, and pronouncing woe upon them as judgment. Now this chapter is important to us for a couple of reasons. First, there's the historical value of it, and then secondly, there's a very contemporary quality to it. Historically, we have to understand the role that these religious leaders played in driving Jesus to the cross and ultimately Israel into exile. And as you may know, because of Israel's rejection of Jesus, it opened the door for the Gentile church to exist in the first place. So in an interesting way, we can credit these men for giving us opportunity to know Jesus. Of course, that's not to their credit, but it is the way God used their sin. But secondly, and I would say perhaps more importantly for us, we need to understand the contemporary impact of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 23 because he was speaking about the false teachers of his day, but there are false teachers in the church in every age, and there are certainly false teachers in the church today. And so as Jesus exposes the methods and the motivations of the Pharisees, 
He's also teaching us how to recognize the false teachers in our day today. Now last week as we opened in this chapter, we studied the methods that the Pharisees were using, how these men used their position of authority to turn worship into wealth. And it started with them creating endless rules and restrictions for Israel, which they burdened the people with, leaving them feeling discouraged and trying to please God. And they put all of those rules in a book they called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was a new law that sat on top of God's law. Ultimately, it became more important to the Pharisees than God's law. And the effect of the Mishnah was to rob people of joy and peace and their relationship with God. It invoked fear among the people because they were afraid of being judged for having failed to keep all of the endless rules within the Mishnah. And ultimately, it misled them about the source of righteousness. That's the first step in their method, creating rules, making people discouraged. Secondly, the leaders made a public showing of their own ability to keep those rules perfectly, although they weren't keeping them perfectly at all. They were ignoring the rules whenever it suited them. They were hypocrites. And by cultivating this reputation among the people for their religious perfection, they became known as experts in how to please God and how to find God. And that led the people to turn to these men for counsel, for direction, seeking some assurance from them that they'd be okay with God when the time came, that God would show favor on them for their efforts. And that led to step three. When you have discouraged people trying to find God and turning to hypocrites seeking their help in the process, it gave those religious leaders leverage. And they used that leverage for personal gain. They would request favors from businessmen or they would uh, go to the wealthy seeking uh, you know, some kind of payback. They required bribes if they wanted them to grant a divorce or if you wanted them to render judgment in some matter of law. They lived a lavish lifestyle which was funded by the poor and the desperate people of Israel who were told that their contributions would curry favor with God. And that three-step process, burden the people, make yourselves their solution, and then turn the screws and leverage that power when the time comes. That three-step solution allowed them to turn worship into wealth. And it was a scam that ensured money flowed, but only in one way, from the people to the Pharisees. In Mark's gospel, we get some confirmation of all of this. In Mark's account of this same moment, let me just read you what Mark says in chapter 12, verse 38. It says, in his teaching, Jesus was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Now notice this, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Matthew has told us much the same thing that Mark did, but you notice Mark adds one important detail He says these men like to devour widows' houses, and that's speaking about their unbridled greed and cynicism. These guys were so determined to gain from their positions, they were even willing to take a widow's last possession, her house. It's like the Grinch who stole Christmas. He left nothing behind. The Pharisees were false teachers, simply put. And the Bible says we will have false teachers in the church today. But false teachers are not merely people who teach wrong things from time to time, because all teachers, frankly, will teach wrong things from time to time. 
Peter, he describes false teachers in a very specific sense. He says this in 2 Peter 2, verse 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. So Peter says false teachers are not merely people who got it wrong. False teachers are first and foremost unbelievers who portray themselves as believers in the church, but yet do not possess what they claim to offer others. They claim to know the way to heaven, and yet they themselves deny the Christ and therefore are destined for hell, Peter says. They're preaching a false message, a message that they try to convince others to follow after, and they do so by appealing to the lusts of those they preach to, and by leading them in their lusts, they bring them into condemnation. Now, the false teachers of our day are doing things a little differently than the ones, perhaps, of Jesus' day. You know, the tactics they use will vary from time to time. But they all share the same hypocritical, greedy desires. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that false teachers are hypocrites and liars with a seared conscience. That is, they use religion for personal gain, and they don't care who they hurt or how much they destroy someone's life. They'll take your last penny if you let them. They're like Pharisees. They show no remorse for their lying words or the, work or the destruction they create. And Jesus, last week as we finished this passage, he warned his disciples to not only steer clear of the people, but to avoid adopting their methods. And in particular, he started with saying, don't adopt the powerful titles that these men crave. And that's where we left off. I wanna rejoin the text there in chapter 23 because there's a couple of verses there at the end that we didn't cover and that launches us into today's teaching. Verse eight of Matthew 23, he says, do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher. You are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father and he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So Jesus says the hypocrisy and the greed of the Pharisees and other religious leaders was most easily witnessed in their desire for these impressive titles that they like to put upon themselves. As I said last week, you know, the titles themselves aren't necessarily wrong. The problem comes when we're seeking for a title out of some selfish, greedy desire to exalt ourselves. And if we demand that people address us by these certain things, in order to gain undue influence, undue honor and attention for ourselves, then Jesus says we're wrong. Or if we use titles to control other people so that we can take that control and use it to acquire wealth or privilege, well then we're wrong. And even if we don't have a title yet, if we are coveting the honor and the privilege and power that a title affords us, well then we're already wrong. And that's the issue here. When we do these things out of a desire to stand above the people and use that to our advantage, you're walking in the footsteps of the Pharisees. It's a kind of selfish pride. And as a result, it's the opposite, Jesus says, of godly humility. You know, pride in ministry is an ever-present danger. And you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be in full-time ministry to succumb to pride in ministry. Sometimes the most prideful and uh, totalitarian 
uh, dictators in the church are the people who have some leadership role in some tiny little ministry in the corner, you know, big fish, small pond kind of thing. But if you're the kind of person who succumbs to that pride, giving into it is the fastest way to lose everything you have in ministry. It can take you from hero to zero in a heartbeat. And it starts with something as simple as seeking that people would call you by a lofty title. Jesus says flatly, stay away from that whole mess. Just don't seek for titles, don't seek for recognition, and don't try to make ministry about privilege. That's not what it's about. Instead, he says in verse 11, the one who wants to be greatest among us, that is the one who really wants to be exalted, ought to be the one who serves everyone else. Now, Jesus taught this same principle back in chapter 18. You may remember from where we taught in that chapter what he said, and we covered it extensively back then. So for now, let me just summarize. I don't need to repeat all that. To summarize, Jesus says, honor and reward in the kingdom will be assigned to us based on humility and sacrifice now. And the grading curve that Jesus says he's gonna use is quite simple. You want more humility now in order to have more honor later. More sacrifice now means more reward later. Or as Jesus puts it in verse 12, if you exalt yourself now, you will be humbled later. And the Greek word for exalt there, if you translate it literally into English, it's the word for lift up. But it's meant in the sense of to gain attention, to stand above the crowd, to get everyone else's praise. And so Jesus is talking about somebody who uses their position in ministry to stand out in such a way that everyone knows who he or she is, everyone knows they're important, everyone knows they're special, and they crave the limelight, and they take credit for someone else's work, and they like a big title above their door, and they want a big office, and they want the parking space reserved out front, and they want their face on a billboard, and on and on and on. That is a prideful approach to ministry that looks at the opportunity to serve as an opportunity to see yourself exalted. And Jesus says, when that person gets into the kingdom, they're gonna be humbled for having done so. They will find that they emphasize the wrong thing and should have been prioritizing the lifting up of others over the lifting up of themselves. But Jesus says, now if we turn that around and we exalt others now, we lift up others now, we give others the opportunity, we seek to make others special in everyone's eyes, then Jesus says, God will honor us for doing so in the kingdom. Our selflessness will be remembered and rewarded. Our humility will be celebrated and honored in the kingdom. And Jesus said back in 18, Matthew 18, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now I wanted to submit to you that I see this issue at play currently in the present circumstances uh, that the church is facing worldwide as we kind of fight to get back into our regular weekly process of meeting in person in our buildings, or as everyone says, we want to get back to normal life again. You know, I think the church may be missing an opportunity to grow spiritually if we're too focused on just reestablishing what God took away from us, at least for a time. We're forgetting that true worship is not meeting in a building and singing songs and praying and the like. I mean, that's a part of it, obviously. But Paul says in Romans 12 that our spiritual service of worship is making our lives living sacrifices, taking our life and turning it over to God. That is true worship. And I think that's in keeping with what Jesus is speaking about now when he says that we should be humbled and self-sacrificial, and that's how we receive honor. 
Because I start to wonder if we're pushing to get church back to regular life and so on, and even for that matter, pushing to see our schools opened again or our businesses opened again, and we're pushing so hard in that direction that we're overlooking the spiritual purpose that God may have had in mind for causing us to experience what we're experiencing in the meantime. You know, maybe in the course of everything that's happening right now, the, go- the Lord is giving us an opportunity to practice what we study every week in this room. An opportunity to learn and practice humility and self-sacrifice. I can't think of a better set of circumstances for giving opportunity for us to do those very things. I mean, could this time be designed by God for each of us to change our daily patterns so that we would be more devoted to the needs of others in this time? You know, maybe it's about parents spending more time with their children, raising them up to be respectful and patient and loving. Or maybe it's Christian spouses spending more time together investing in their marriages. Maybe it's believers making sacrifices and sharing their resources with other families in their neighborhood who are out of work and missing paychecks. Maybe it's about donating to ministries or agencies who are on the front lines. Or maybe it's a church showing the love of Christ to those in our walk in our neighborhood by mowing the lawns of first responders who are too busy caring for those or maybe for just caring for someone sick in your family. You know, maybe it's just about spending more time in God's word and in prayer and in solitude. As Isaiah says, knowing that God is and being still in his presence. You know, there's something God's working to accomplish through all of this, that's a given. But if we're only thinking about getting back to normal, we might miss it. Let's take full advantage of our present situation to gain more humility to learn self-sacrifice, to learn obedience to the government, to learn obedience to Christ in the midst of these circumstances because that's the path to greater honor in the kingdom. Meanwhile, humility and sacrifice wasn't the Pharisees' priority, obviously. They liked to talk about the kingdom, but in reality, they were living for this world. And their greed had resulted in Israel being now left desolate, that is, without the kingdom, without their Messiah. And as a result, Jesus now pronounces woe against these men, and that's where we go next. Now, the word woe is a transliteration, really, of a Greek word called ue, and and the Greek word just means alas, but it's an expression of grief uh, in the face of condemnation. And biblically, it has a very specific meaning when you see the word woe spoken, especially if it's spoken by Jesus, by God himself. It is a pronouncement of eternal damnation. When Jesus says woe to something, the future of that someone or something is condemnation in Hades or utter destruction. There's no recovery from a woe when Jesus speaks it. So Jesus pronounces a total of seven woes uh, against the Pharisees in this chapter. And of course, number seven being the number of completion, he's showing that the judgment of these men is assured, it is complete in God's eyes, and it will come. And the seven woes form a very interesting study of their own for us. These are seven areas of religious sin committed by these hypocritical Pharisees, but they're not unique to Pharisees. They are repeated a million times every day by religious imposters everywhere. And even worse, these seven mistakes can also stumble true believers in the church who might get confused about seeking earthly gain instead of uh, serving God. And so when we study these woes, they run from chapter 23, verse 13 through verse 26, or 36 rather. 
And in the course of these seven woes, you're going to see uh, an opportunity to learn about not only how false teachers and false religious imposters work, but I think we're also gonna see opportunities in our own walk where we can do better. The seven are organized as a chiasm. For those of you who study with me, you'll know what I'm referring to. What it means is that they're paired up. The first and the last are paired up. The second and the second from last are paired up in this chiastic structure. And since you have a total of seven, there's an odd one in the middle that isn't paired up with anything. That middle point, the fourth point of the seven, is the main point of what Jesus is saying. And the chiastic structure helps point your attention to it. We'll look at it when we get there. Meanwhile, let's study the first of these seven woes. In chapter 23, verse 13, Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So Jesus' first woe against the religious leaders is this. They rejected the eternal life of the kingdom, and they prevented others from entering it as well. They talked about entering the kingdom all the time, but the way they actually thought they could enter it was a barrier to achieving it. That is, they trusted in their own works-based, Pharisaic system of religion, thinking that that would approve them before God. They thought that doing good works, works of law, would bring them righteousness, and that by earning righteousness in that way, God would have no choice but to allow them into heaven. It's called self-righteousness, because it's saying, I can work my own way to heaven. I can make myself good enough to warrant heaven. But Jesus says it was actually a barrier to heaven. The Bible says you cannot become righteous in that way. Paul says in Romans 3.20, By works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Paul just said is this. The standard for entry into heaven is the glory of God, which is a phrase that means the perfection of God. And Paul says we all fall short of the glory of God. We all are less than perfect. And if the standard to enter heaven is perfection and we're all less than perfect, we all have a problem. So works, that is trying to make up for your imperfections by doing something good, that idea falls short also. Because works cannot make us righteous enough to enter heaven. It does not matter how many good things you do from this point forward. None of those good things can erase the sin you did yesterday. It doesn't work that way. And the Pharisees taught that their system of rules was capable of creating that righteous outcome, that it would get you into heaven. And so they taught that to people and the people who heard that listened and they obeyed that teaching and so they tried to do the works of the Mishnah to enter heaven. Jesus says in the process, the Pharisees were not only cutting themselves off from heaven for having followed the wrong system, but they were also cutting off the people. They were barring others from the opportunity to know the truth because they laid out the wrong path. You know, this is a clear repudiation of anyone who would tell you that there are many paths to heaven or that all roads lead to heaven. This clearly says there are bad roads that don't lead you to heaven, everything except the one that Jesus gave us. There's only the one of faith in Christ. 
Any system of works, whether it's the one the Pharisees invented or something else that's on the earth today, none of them please God, none of them result in entry into heaven, none of them can erase sin. Therefore, you have to have a solution that takes away your sin, not merely encourages good behavior. And that is the system, if you will, the method that Jesus gave us, that faith in his good life, his good works, will give us what we lack and his death on the cross will pay for the sins that we did. Earlier, Jesus said in, in this chapter, if you want to be exalted when you reach the kingdom, you have to be willing to be humbled now. And there is no part of life where that is more true than in the matter of salvation itself. As Jesus shows us in Luke's gospel, let me just read a small passage from Luke. In Luke chapter 18, he tells this story, this parable. He says, chapter 18, verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes heaven to heaven. He was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You notice the Pharisee was quick to exalt himself, uh, claiming all the good things that he was doing for God, and he self-righteously declares that he is worthy of God's praise, unlike this sinner standing next to him. You notice he even prays to himself, Jesus said, which is a way of saying he thought he had merit. He had his own uh, right and privilege to go to heaven. He he earned it. It was already there inside him. Meanwhile, that sinner recognized that he had no hope apart from God's mercy, and so he humbly throws himself on the mercy of God and asks for forgiveness. And Jesus said that man who is willing to humble himself will be exalted. Meanwhile, the one who was busy exalting himself will be humbled. That in other words, true salvation is recognizing that apart from God's grace, you have no hope to reach heaven on your own. You know, the old adage we say, you'll hear sometimes people say that God helps those who help themselves. Do you realize that's not only not in the Bible, it's actually contrary to the Bible. It's the opposite of the truth. God helps those who recognize they have no hope to help themselves. And as a result, they seek God's help. That's the gospel. And so the lesson of the first, low, the first woe is very simple. Beware false teachers who spread a false gospel of works that will not save you. Not all roads lead to heaven, so be sure you pick the right teacher who understands the true gospel and preaches the gospel of grace that is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, so the first one is pretty straightforward. The second one comes after this, but in verse 14, there's a little confusion we need to settle first. Verse 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, and therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Now, you recognize that verse? Sounds an awful lot like the one we read a moment earlier from Mark's gospel. And almost assuredly, that's where it came from. Matthew likely did not author Verse 14, it doesn't appear in the most reliable manuscripts of Matthew's gospel. It was probably added at some later point by a copyist who was trying to align Mark 
and Matthew, so they took this verse out of Mark, stuck it in Matthew. In fact, your English Bible may have brackets around this verse, and if so, that's good because that's your Bible translators telling you we have reason to suspect this verse may not be in the original text. Now, since we've already covered the subject of it from Mark, we'll move on and go to the second woe, which is actually in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So this is the second of the seven, and Jesus says the Pharisees liked to, quote, travel the world to convert just a single person if they could, and yet they converted people to the wrong system. That's the essence of this condemnation. They weren't converting people to faith in the coming Messiah. They were winning converts to Pharisaic Judaism. They didn't call people to trust in the word of God. They were calling people to trust in the Mishnah. They were winning converts to self-righteousness and to their system of religion, not to being disciples of Messiah. Adopting Pharisaic Judaism was a little bit like um, entering a, a secret society, you know, where you had to knock a certain amount of times to get in the door and you had to know the secret handshake and all the rest. You know, people felt privileged to be allowed to join the Pharisaic movement. But in doing so, they adopted this severe lifestyle. I mean, it was a lot of hard work. And performance standards were very high to be considered a Pharisee, never mind the fact that they were all hypocrites anyway. And it, it made the followers who would adopt Pharisaic Judaism feel special and feel qualified and worthy of heaven, like they had arrived, you know, religiously speaking. But it's also for that same reason that Pharisaic Judaism didn't appeal to many people. I mean, it wasn't easy to recruit people to Pharisaic Judaism, and that's why they had to go out of their way to find new recruits, just as Jesus describes here, traveling far and wide to recruit that next generation of Pharisees who would be willing to put up with all of the difficulty that came with wearing the title. But as they did, as they recruited this next generation, these new recruits would come in even more zealous for the Mishnah than their forefathers were. So that over time, the Pharisaic movement became even more exaggerated, even more zealous and farther from the truth. And that's why Jesus says the newest members would be twice sons of hell as the ones who recruited them were. You know, this is not unique to Pharisaic Judaism either. It's a characteristic, actually, of false religion and false movements, and especially of those that find their way into the church. That is, someone will come at some point championing some minor issue, uh, some special cause within the church. I'm sure you've run into people like this. They have this thing that they want to make a point about, and they champion it even more than they do Christ himself. And as they do, they will eventually win converts to their cause, to their pet issue, whatever it is. And here's the problem. Quite often, as they're winning converts to their thing, they're winning unbelievers to the belief in their special pet project. They're making them disciples of that cause rather than preaching the gospel and making them disciples of Jesus. And so as a result, you end up with these people who come into the church thinking themselves saved because they've agreed with some pitch, but the pitch that they agreed to was not the pitch of believe and be saved. They've confused agreeing with that pet cause with agreeing with the gospel because they don't know the difference. There was a story told by the well-known Scottish preacher Alistair Begg, who currently preaches in the United States 
in Ohio. He tells a story of when he first came to the U.S. some 30 or more years ago, and he was playing golf with a U.S. pastor at the time, and as they were at the tee box, that pastor turns to Alistair and says, so Alistair, you know, welcome to the U.S., and so what's your thing? And Alistair didn't understand the question. And as he tells the story, he says he turns to the pastor and says, what do you mean, what, what thing? And the pastor explained, well, you know, everybody in ministry you know, has some things. They need, you need some thing, some angle, some issue, some pet cause that defines you, that defines your ministry. So you know, what's your thing gonna be, Alistair? And Alistair said he thought about it for a minute and he said, well, I, I, I don't really have a thing. He said, can the gospel be my thing? And the pastor said, no, 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 you can't be the gospel. It's gotta be something other than the gospel. And that's a true story. And I think today you find people in the church championing their thing, something they are for or something they are against, and that's all that matters to them. Wherever they go, whoever they talk about, it's about the thing. And that will cause over time for them to overshadow the gospel itself in their testimony and in their witness, and it may eventually define their Christian walk. You'll find Christians today you know, pushing herbal remedies or special prayers or treatments for cures of, you know, of certain kinds and uh, trying to convince you to keep the law or to keep the feast or to keep the Sabbath or only meet at church on certain days or only use the King James or only sing hymns. I mean, there are a million things that people suddenly decide define proper Christianity. And for them, if they're not careful, it might become more important to preach their thing than to preach their gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was Jesus' complaint in the second woe against these men. They had become advocates of a religious system of their own making rather than advocates for God and his word. So if the first woe was believing in a false gospel, then the second woe is preaching a false gospel to others. The first sin was having the wrong content. The second sin was having the wrong objective. The first mistake led uh, the individual themselves and those who followed into condemnation. And the second mistake just amplified the effect. So Jesus pronounces woe on the Pharisees for this too. And both their sins, that of having the wrong gospel and of converting those to the wrong thing, all of that is dooming souls to eternal punishment. I think we need to recognize the seriousness of what we are about in the church, you know, church is not a social event. It's not just something on your calendar. It's not just something that you would join because you want an association with nice people. We are about our Father's business. We are serving a living God who is in pursuit of souls. And often, you will only get one chance to influence somebody in a conversation. You better be sure you use that opportunity wisely. Don't influence them for some pet cause, some business opportunity, or some political action. You better be in there to influence them for Jesus and for the gospel. You're an ambassador for Christ. So speak of Jesus and him crucified and nothing else, as Paul says. Don't become an advocate for secondary issues and especially not for things that are false or disruptive or destructive or just pointless. Don't be carried away by fads or strange new movements in the church. You know, this is not a multi-level marketing society here. We are Christ's bride. We are the one placed on earth to show the rest of the world how they enter the kingdom. That's our mission, and that is a worthy mission. That is an honorable mission. It's the only one that matters. 
And the content of what we tell people matters too, what we share with others. Make sure you have the gospel right. Make sure you can explain it succinctly, plainly. And don't offer them anything else in place of it. Don't make your conversations about the meaningless things of the day when you have an opportunity to talk about eternal things. Don't be an advocate for things that distract from the truth. Be there to witness to the truth. And let's do that together in humility and self-sacrifice because we all know there's a day coming very soon when this world is gone and the next one will have come. And when we get to that day, wouldn't it be nice to be surrounded by brothers and sisters who believed the same message we did because we shared it with them in humility? Let's make that our goal this week. And let me pray with you. Dear Father, we thank you for this message that you've entrusted to us, to children, as Jesus calls us, infants who are unwise, unlearned, untrained, But Father, that's why you receive the glory when we serve you, because self-evidently, it is all your power, all your message, all your work, and all your glory. Father, forgive us if we become distracted, or if perhaps we're rushing past our circumstances and missing opportunity to learn from them. There's someone in our walk this week, Father, I'm sure, who is in need of our service, of our testimony, of our support, Let us minister to them. Let let church be what we do this week and not some event we look forward to in the future. And as we come into that moment, Father, give us the courage and the wisdom to use it according to your will. We thank you for the opportunity before it even comes. In Jesus' name, amen.